2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Let's try that one. 2 Timothy 2, 15. Last week, we talked about how do we get here. We talked from Romans chapter 1, spent two entire messages at Romans chapter 1. This, and I was, what we're talking about today is what I hoped to do last Sunday evening, but we're finally there. And now, what do we do? Or there is hope, or where do we go from here? If you want to give it a title, back to basics 1, or where do we go from here? In light of all that we have saw last week regarding Romans chapter 1, we are a nation in a uh, need of turning back. I was just listening this morning to the land of Australia, and a teacher uh, gave a homework assignment to a 10-year-old girl that was absolutely abhorrent and immoral and all those things. And if we don't stand up, if our country doesn't stand up for what is right, we're going to lose a generation. We Not only a generation, we're going to lose our country. We are disintegrating in the moral chaos. You and I have got to stand on God's word. We must. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Even though we are the greatest nation, I believe, uh, certainly on this side of the cross that's ever existed as far as helping others, we need God. And when we think we don't need God, we are in trouble. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all nations that what? Forget God. You forget God, you are, I would say you're toast, but that probably wouldn't be, but that may be what my mind's thinking. From a Castle report called Defending Western Civilization, March 12, 2021, quoting now, I'm not advocating the book he's going to talk about, but this is a quote. The Nazis told the people that anything that did not advance the cause of national socialism should be destroyed, and that is not far away from the view that anything that does not advance the ideology of the current intelligentsia in charge of this country should be destroyed. Perhaps the best example would be the 1951 science fiction classic by Bradbury Fahrenheit 451, The book was set in a dystopian future world in which books were outlawed as dangerous and the authorities ordered to destroy them all. Groups known as firemen are appointed to hunt down and burn all books. As an aside, the term Fahrenheit 451 supposedly refers to the exact temperature in which books burst into flame. Quoting now the last paragraph. In conclusion, no great empire in the history of the world has ever gone into decline and disintegration and then regained its former glory. Especially true, says the writer, when the disintegration was intentional destruction from within rather than conquest from without. Will America be the first to achieve its former glory? It doesn't seem to look good right now, he says, but we will see. Is there any way that disintegration could be reversed? He goes, sure. There is, if God's people who are called by his name will humble themselves and pray, etc. And I would add also repentance from the top down. God can heal our land. Where do we go from here? What is the answer? Where are people turning this morning to find relief from all the pressures of society and all the pressures of whatever they're facing? Well, some turn to self-harm. We are living in a post-truth era. Post-truth era, that was chosen in 2018 by one of the dictionaries as the word. Post-truth means simply a society where a majority of people set their own standards of moral right and wrong based on their feelings regardless of fact. 
that speaks exactly where we are today. People are basing what is right and wrong upon their feelings rather than what facts are, even biological facts. That is the post-truth era. You say, I don't want to be in it. Too late. We're there. We have to then see what God has for us in this era in our own nation. So where do people turn? There's self-harm. There is trichotillomania, which is hair pulling. I think I must have had that earlier on, hair pulling out of your head. I, don't, I shouldn't make light of that because that truly is a, a compulsive disorder for some. Uh, alcoholism, caffeine, caffeinated drinks, except for Diet Mountain Dew. Compulsive spending, creation of debt, emotional eating, pornography. I think pornography is a, certainly as strong as any drug, most likely. Isolation, surrender, giving up, stop trying, fear, anxiety, sleeping too much, sleeping too little, withdrawing from society, increasing your screen time, violence, and workaholism. <sighs> All those are the wrong way to go. We need to go back to the very rock upon which our foundation is founded upon, Christian. The rock of our salvation. We need to go to Scripture. Where do we go from here? The same place you should have been going all your Christian life. The same God who's on the mountains, also in the valley. We enjoy the mountaintops. I like the mountaintops. We don't care so much about the valley existence or the valley experiences, but they are just as real as the mountain, and we are to trust God the entire time. 2 Timothy 2.15. We are scripture. If you're over there yet, I'm not over there quite yet, so I'll be there in just a moment. We'll read it all together in just a moment. 2 Timothy 2.15. The first S was all last Sunday, the state of the union, if you would. Second S in our message, continuing on, is study. So let's read together. Second Timothy 2.15, together we go. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. We find in Acts 17.11 that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica, speaking of the Berean Christians, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Psalm 119, 130, the entrance of thy word giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. I tell you, you cannot jettison God's word from your life, Christian, without dramatically devastating consequences. Study showed. July of 2019, Lifeway, which is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, I believe that is true, regarding people who go to church. Listen to the Bible reading plans of those who go to church. 32% of those who go to church read it daily. Uh, There are a few times a week is 27%. One time a week is 12%. Once or more per month was about 4%. And this what struck me, rarely or never, 12%. People who attend church rarely or never read their Bibles. I tell you, I'm missing it. You are missing why you're born again. You are born again to learn about the God who saved you. You are. From the Ponce Foundation, he says this, less than 30% of the Christians will ever read the Bible through one time in their life. Less than 30%. But you'll spend hours, hours, hours watching sports or TV or movies or this, that, or reading stuff that's of no consequence. Why are we spending some time? Listen, if you need a wake-up call, we've had it for the last several years. Starting in September 1 of... 2011, 9-11. When that happened, we should wake up. We should wake up. 
Only 22% of American Christians, one study showed, believe that the Bible is fully inspired by God himself. 22% of American Christians. Another study said that 3% of Americans read the Bible four or more times a week, and 10% read it several times a week, and 9% of the Christians read it, or Americans read it one time per week. Whatever statistic, there's no good statistic I've read to you yet today. We in America, we have decided that we are beyond reading God's Word. Now, as a man, 61-year-old man, okay, so you can tell, you can tell Brantley and Connor later, 61-year-old man, I've decided pretty much I'm beyond directions. I could just, I, but, you know, I, I should, I, I, but then I've come back home and realized, you know what, I need to go back to the basics and read the directions. It's so much easier to just read how, how to do things the right way. We have decided in America that we don't need God so much, so we're going to do what we, the intelligentsia has been teaching. Do you know that in most colleges and universities today, the history of Western civilization is no longer taught? And you can get in trouble for teaching it. When I was in college in 1982, I took a 7 o'clock in the morning three times a week class. I had to take that history of what Nat Phillips was the teacher. He's a good teacher. But at 7 in the morning, I'm hard in college. I'm just one lucky to be awake. And it was required. Now, they don't want you to know. They don't want our young people to know how we got here. Let me tell you, the Christian motif of living, following Christ, is the one that has changed the world. You want to know who's done the most eradicate slavery? It's Christians who've started the most hospitals. It's Christians, the most orphanage. It's Christians, a lot of the... uh, Things that have been created are Christians who desire to follow God. You want to know what's scientific? Is follow what God has already given us. We are just learning what God has created. You don't discover diddly squat, scientist. You learn what God has already given us. And that's a great, by the way, that's a great thing. Hope someday there's a cure for cancer. Hope someday there's a cure for barter's syndrome. Hope someday there's a cure for, for all these different things. For uh, Immune disorders, autoimmune disorders. I hope someday somebody can find a, a way and for headaches. There's going to be no headaches in heaven. My family has suffered. I'm Praise the Lord, I've been re- mostly relieved from all those, but the rest of my family has suffered every single day from those. And if you don't have headaches, count your blessings. You, you, don't, know what you, you don't want to know what you're missing. Someday, though, I pray that someone can have things. In heaven it will be fixed. A.B. Simpson said this. God has hidden, regarding God's word, God has hidden every precious thing in such a way that is reward to the diligent, a prize to the earnest, but a disappointment to the slothful soul. All nature is arrayed against the lounger and the idler. The nut is hidden in its thorny case. The pearl is buried beneath the ocean waves. The gold is imprisoned in the rocky bosom of the mountains. The gem is found only after you crush the rock which encloses it. The very soil gives its harvest as a a reward of the laboring farmer, so then truth and God must be earnestly sought. It's not that Christianity is, is found wanting, it's that people are found difficult, not tried. I tell you, I'm not preaching to you an easy believism or an easy way to go. The gospel of Christ, the Christian is take up your cross. Listen, it's going to come, it's already been dividing the Christians who believe God's word and the Christians who don't. If you believe God's word, you are a fundamentalist. And let me just give you a quick example. 
of what people think about fundamentalists. And if I can find it here real quick, I said, it's not right there. It's right here. Hold on just a minute. I'll find it here and I'll read it for you. Uh, maybe I will. Maybe I won't. It is. I found it. Uh, it's on page 24. Uh, New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof accurately described the anti-Christian sentiment overtaking U.S. culture shapers today when he wrote these words. Today, among urban Americans and Europeans, evangelical Christian is sometimes a synonym for rube, R-U-B-E. In liberal circles, evangelicals constitute one of the few groups that it's safe to mock openly, The same disdain that Christoph politely described can be seen more aggressively in other leading edges of American culture. This is from the book Hope of Nations by John Dickerson, which you can borrow when I'm done, if you want. Uh, From mainstream news media to entertainment, film, Silicon Valley, Washington, etc. Listen to this. In less sanitized terms, actress Megan Fox demonstrated this cultural animosity toward Christians in America. Ask how she would keep an evil robot from destroying the entire world. She replied, quoting, I'd barter with him and say, instead of the entire planet, can you just take out all the white trash, hillbilly, anti-gay, super Bible-beaming people in middle America? She summarized, well, the cultural mood as it relates to Christians, especially Bible-believing ones, her sentiment can be found in every leaning edge of American culture today. I want to call it, he says, Christianophobia. Christianophobia. Listen, it's the Christians, for the most part, who founded, as at least a Christian mindset, our own country, who have held the country together. It's the very people that... Do you know that Harvard and Yale and all these were founded as preacher schools? Preacher schools. And now they're the very ones who are enjoying their probably six-figure salaries and complaining about America. They've enjoyed the six-figure salaries in. It It goes against, I know, I'm on my soapbox. I'll get off my soapbox and get back to the message. Study to show thyself approved unto God. That is the purpose. Study means to be eager, to do your utmost, to bend your every effort to do your best, spare no effort, to work hard. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word, but it conveys the idea of exertion. It means to be conscientious, zealous, and earnest in discharging a duty or obligation. It's a command to do this, an aorist imperative. Imperative, we know what that means. It's, it's past tense. You must do. Study to show. You are to be about God's word. That's the, you know, study. Imperative. I don't want to do it. I don't care. You do it anyway. Now, my parents, every once in a while, I'll pull that card out. Anyway, we didn't play cards. Okay, they pulled out that motto. It just, you know, we just, it, it, you don't have to, you know, just, we said to do it. Just do it. Not very often, me being the meek, mild, gentle person. Now, Angie's here today. But being the meek, mild, gentle person, I would always say, yes, mom. Yes, dad. Happily, I'd, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I, I would do it, but I wouldn't say, yes, mom. I'm happy to do it. It, like, it would be like well, over the top. But, I, you know, we did it for the most part. So I don't want to study God's Word. I don't care. The Bible says to do it. And I can tell you this. You will do it with joy. The thing I like doing the most is studying God's Word and reading and learning more about it. You said, Pastor, how do you do that? Number one, you need to have a study Bible. I have a, get a Bible that has notes. You, this has been, this Bible, I've, 30 years I've been working with the, the, the Henry Morris Study Bible. It has taught me so much. When I get to heaven, he's going to be one of the very first people I look up. Dr. Morris, thank you for writing down your notes for 25 years and including them in a, 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 this Bible. I've learned so much from him. 
study, to show. The word show means to present, literally to stand beside or or to be near. To present includes the idea of yielding, to place at the disposal of another. So so to lay oneself out, it conveys a surrendering. Actually, the word also was used to speak of a bride being presented to the bridegroom. A very personal, loving act. A young woman gives herself to the young man in marriage and in that culture pre-women's lib, it meant that she was doing herself, giving herself completely, her devotion, her time, her body, her complete focus was now toward her husband because of his love for her and her love for him. And that's how study to show. You can talk all day till the cows come home, but I want to see it in your actions. Is there a point in time where your husband or wife or children can find you studying God's word every single day? Same spot, same time, same back channel. Is there a time? There should be. I, I know that my mom and dad, my mom and dad, I know, they usually were done reading before I got up. But I caught my mom and dad reading the Bible quite often. And that's a good thing. A very good thing to do. My wife has a picture of, a recent picture of me on the chair with, I got one cat in the lap and one cat on the back of my chair looking over, over, over me as I'm trying to read my Bible. And the one cat has learned that he doesn't like the marker going highlight when I'm doing my messages. And so he jumped up there and he, he tries to bat the marker and chew the, all these kind of things to distract me from what I'm trying to do. So we'll have to find a new avenue for that cat. <laughs> Study to show thyself approved Jim Elliott, who was later martyred in, on January the 8th in 1956. I'm sure you've heard the story, Jim Elliott, Alka Indians. He was in Wheaton College. He wrote in his diary, he said, quoting now, My grades came through this week and were, as expected, lower than last semester. However, I make no apologies. And I admit, I've let them drop and drag a bit for study of the Bible, in which I seek the degree A-U-G, approved unto God. Approved unto God. Whatever it was, he learned it well. He and four other men gave their lives on the shores there of the Alka Indians, and they were trying to share the gospel and had shown them love. And by the way, if you should read this story, if you've never heard of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, and Ed McCauley, and the fourth, fifth one I can't remember, the people who came to know Christ as a result, it was, I think, at least 300 People stood at Moody Bible Institute when the first message was given after that to give their lives to missionary service. Amazing. These men who were sharp, all those ways, gave their lives for the cause of Christ. And I will tell you, it's been, I've talked about it many times. We At Temple, they used to have uh, the Bridge of Blood was a play, that drama. I know you like, like drama. They would travel around the, the, the churches and, and deliver this drama, the Bridge of We actually at Brian, we did that at different times. The Bridge of Blood. Approved unto God. We are to be approved unto him. Approved, is, it means it's like you put the metal through the testing, the trial, and it comes out on the other side proven to, to show authentic or genuine in that culture, in that age. They would make money, and, 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 their, and their molds were not that clear and, or concise, and so the coin would come out, and they'd have to shave the edges off to make it real nice and round to be able to go into circulation. But you can imagine what happened then, because there's so much on weight, People got a hold of coins and they start shaving off more. And shaving off a little bit here, keeping the filings. And then they could make another coin if you shaved off enough. But there were some in the culture who were right. 
Some money changers were men of integrity who would accept no counterfeit money. They were men of honor who put only genuine, full-weighted money into circulation. Such men were called approved. The word here, dokinos, dokimos, approved. Genuine, authentic. They were men who, who lived to, to do the right thing. The story is told of a, of a young man who was doing a, a violin concert and he, a, a renowned teacher he had. And so he finished his first song and got a, a big applause. He got the entire concert done and everybody's applauding, but he had a frown on his face. Wasn't happy at all. Finally, he looked up in the balcony and there's this older gentleman and the older gentleman had a little smile and a nod. And the violinist burst into the biggest smile because he was approved unto his teacher. I gave my senior recital. I was recovering from, uh, what was I recovering from? Mononucleosis. I got mono my last semester of college, my senior piano recital. And, I give, and the Lord helped me to go through the entire recital. It was all memorized. And I'm, the Lord helped me through that, except for a couple of songs I accompanied somebody. But memorized songs. And just, Mrs. Herman gave me a smile. She gave me an A plus for a grade. I don't know what she was thinking, but she gave me an A plus. And see, when Mrs. Ellen Herman smiled at you, that's like the best you're going to get. Because she wasn't slapping your hands with a ruler. She wasn't cutting off your fingernails. She wasn't going to... She, she gave you a smile. She was a fantastic pianist. And she graciously took me on. But her smile, that's what I wanted. Tim, you did a good job. That's what, a, a study to show thyself approved unto whom? The world? No. To Andrew Stevens and Seth Stevens? No. To Mr. Well, Mr. Womack, I try to. But, but Andrew and Seth Stevens? No. I show ourselves approved unto God. See, that's it. What does God think of your life and my life? And the next word there is a workman. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman. Now, that word means to engage in activity involving considerable expenditure of effort. It is the root word of English words like ergos, ergonomics, literally describes a worker or workman or laborer, someone who's engaged in labor, is one who affects something or brings about an effect through the exertion of effort, whether mental or physical. In the spiritual realm, there are workers for good. There are those who, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Are you striving to be a workman for God? I'm not, again, I'm not offering you the easy way out. It's far harder, I believe, to hold the Christian mindset and believe God's word and, and, and be true to God's word in this culture than to simply compromise is the easy way out. It's easy. It's easy. Oh, I, I believe this. Or I'm going to start doing that. Or, oh, you know, it's not that important. One of the new, one of the new ways to get around the uh, same-sex marriage is, well, there's two kinds of marriages now. There's a civil marriage, and there's one that God, there's a religious marriage. And so religious marriage, we know, is between one man and one woman, but civil marriage can be between, no, no, God didn't say there's multiplicity of marriage options. There's but one, but one, one man, one woman for life. That's his, that's his, he decided, pastor, I don't like that. Read your Bible. Talk to God about it. <laughs> He's the one that set the rules. Set the, uh, and by the way, can I just tell you that every time you follow God's plan, it always ends up best. When you start going away from the directions my son and I put together at an entertainment center where my wife and I are somebody and I put it for two hours not reading the directions, we had to take it all apart and put it all back together. If I had just read the directions the first time, it all works out the best. 
Someone wrote these words, lost yesterday somewhere between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours, each set with 60 diamond minutes. No reward offered, for they are gone forever. So, redeem the time God only knows, how soon our little life may close with all its pleasures and its woes. Redeem the time. Redeem the time. It was J.R. Tolkien, I can't remember exactly the quote, but he said, it's not so much the time you're given, but it's what you do with the time that you have. Mara Pillay died at 36, going to the mission field. Some of you remember Mara and Chris Pillay, his first wife, while giving a testimony. I think it was a Temple Baptist. I think it was. And she was 36, going to the mission field to, of all places, Mongolia. And she was active and started the Crisis Pregnancy Center. 36 years of age, giving a testimony in church, of, in a, a church activity of all things, and boom, had a heart attack, died right on the spot. Oh, she was. In heaven. We don't know. We just don't know how much time we have left. Connor and Brantley and I tease about how old I am. We decided I'm, I'm, I'm in the 60s somewhere. I'm going to stay there for about 40 years. I'm in the 60s somewhere. There we are. And I, I, I like that when I go in and Connor goes, Preacher, how are you? I like that. So, uh, and I had to run back there and say hi to him. Precept Austin says, It is easy for preachers to become paid loafers and social parasites, wasting their days in pleasure, recreation, and bumming around with their open palms with an expectant look. Sadly, they say the religious hucksters and hirelings of the world have earned their reputation, but let no gospel preacher do so. No gospel preacher do so. Not ashamed. Our verse continues on. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Could I challenge myself and you as well to consider measuring your thoughts, words, and deeds by that phrase, not ashamed? A worker who does not need to be ashamed? That if Christ were to come back while you're reading that, watching that, doing that, would you be ashamed? 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, that we will not be ashamed when he comes. We should be doing his business. We purify ourselves in light of his imminent return at any moment. It's, it's, I just read just yesterday or the day before about the, uh, something happened in the government and the sword of diocrephes, whatever his name is, Doc, I can't remember his name, but anyway, it's the, it's the hanging over the head sword is hanging over the heads of some people in Congress now. But at any moment, the sword's going to drop. Listen, at any moment, he's coming back. Your time of service will be over. If you stood before God today, would you be satisfied with what you have done for him? The songwriter said, oh, I wish I'd given him more. I can tell you right now with almost 99 point, I'm going to say that, those very words. I can tell you, I'm almost 100% sure. I am 100% sure. Given the opportunity, oh, I wish I'd given him more. I spent so much time on the things that don't matter. We were sitting at a restaurant last night, and I'm not going to tell you where it was. I don't even know the people who were, but they're talking about things of absolute no consequence. We listened to them, and listen, they were loud enough that we could listen to them where we were sitting. Nothing of eternal importance was said about anything. I'm not boohooing fellowship time. I'm saying we should be different. I should ask you, what have you, what have you learned what have you learned today? What, what's one thing you've learned this past week about God? One person told me recently that God's time, basically, was God's time's not my time. 
That's it. And that's it. God has a plan. When we pray, it's not that we're trying to twist God around our finger, just the opposite. We should be praying that we come to what God wants for us. That's the praying, Lord, please, I want to surrender what you have for Lord, please do this, 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 and this. That's the wrong mindset. Lord, please help me to grow into what you have for me. That's, that's praying. Bring me to what you have. That's, that's a little bit down the road. We're still in, we're still in studying. <clears throat> Not ashamed. Someone, Simpson, wrote these words, I want among the victor throng someday to have my name confessed and hear my master say at last, you stand approved. You did your best. Isn't that what you want to hear? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Isn't that what you want to hear? Rightly dividing. It means to make it straight, to cut straight. A craftsman cutting a straight line, a farmer plowing a straight furrow, a line of bricks that is straight. The present tense calls us to continually rightly dividing the word of truth. That's when you read God's word, you don't come up with some erroneous, pandemonic, oh, I probably shouldn't put that word in there, but erroneous, uh, cultish ideology from God's word. You are to rightly divide the word of truth. Christian, rightly divide it. Don't do some eisegesis. Well, what in the world is eisegesis? That's reading into the text what you want it to say. Have you ever come to something with a preconceived notion? Now, I preconceived that I did not like liver. And I tell you, that first bite, just concert for, my I said Jesus was correct this time because liver, oh, that's my, now you may love liver, great. My, my wife's eisegesis regarding Mount, diet Mountain Dew, she doesn't like it, and she doesn't like it. She's correct. I said, Jesus Christ uh, speaking is, well, I've got this theological persuasion. And when I re- how does it fit into what I think it needs to say? Well, I think, well, I think that might mean this. So I think we can turn this over. How, that's reading into God's word what you want. Exegesis is what does God's word say? Our Sunday school teacher here does it every Sunday morning. What, does, what do the words mean? Study. To be diligent, to show, to, to, give, to lay yourself down for the cause. What they want, so show us approved, genuine, approved unto God, a workman, someone who's actually doing something. Needeth not to be ashamed. We know what that word, if you're not ashamed, you, you are not, you're not embarrassed by what you have or have not done. Rightly dividing, that's what it means to, to, to choose and to teach Possibly Paul's, the tent maker, had this idea when he's writing these words here. uh, And he'd take these pieces of animal skin and he would sew them together in just the right place to make a great tent. If one doesn't fit the pieces right, the whole won't fit together properly. That's why reading the Bible through in the months is amazing. And you would see how the Bible, it's, it's one book. Oh, but pastor, I know there's 60. I know, and there's 39, 27. There's one author, one author, 15, 1600 years, 40 human authors, but one Holy Spirit. That is why it fits seamlessly together. Whether you're reading Revelation 22 or Genesis 1-1, it's one God, it's the God who wrote it all. You cannot explain the Bible outside of God. You cannot explain Israel outside of God, watching all of them for nearly 4,000 years. You want two clear, quintessential examples of who God is or how powerful He is, the Bible and Israel alone. Now, you need nothing else. There's, there's plenty more. 
Either of those alone should convince you as to the veracity of God. The careful exegete or expositor of God's word of truth must be meticulous in the way he interprets and pieces these together. As you read together and you can say, well, what does that mean? That's why the, one of the key words of the Reformation was sola scriptura. The watchword of the Reformation, we set our standards by God's word. That's the ticket. There were different ways in one 16th century French reformer pictured this as a father dividing out the food at a meal and cutting it so that each member of the family received the right portion. Another theologian of the 1500s, Beza, said it was like with the cutting of the sacrificial victim so that each part was correctly apportioned on the altar or to the priest. The Greeks themselves used this word to mean driving us straight across the road or country or plowing a straight furrow or the work of a mason cutting and squaring the stones just straight on. That is the word, rightly dividing. You're consistent with the Bible throughout. Henry Morris says in his notes, he says, that this, the one who would be a faithful teacher of God's word, must diligently study it and be careful to accept and teach it as it is. This means taking it to mean exactly what the writer intended it to mean, not deviating to the right or to the left. Normally, he says it would require taking it literally, unless the writer himself makes it evident that he is using symbolic language or a figure of speech. The writers, especially writers inspired by the Spirit of God, wanted their writings to be understood. Consequently, they would normally use figurative language only if this would make their message easier to understand. The historical, literal, grammatical teaching is what I believe the Bible is how we understand it. There are some today who, and, and Miss Cindy's been sharing some, some texts and, and, and posts, etc., about some people who think, get off on just a what, like the Revelation talks about the, like this or that, or this talks about that, or if you're not doing that, you're, they're not rightly dividing the word of truth. If the literal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. Oh, but pastor, those, and all the symbols in the revelation, how can you even... It's, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about the Jewish people. It's about Jesus coming back for them. It's about the terrible things going to happen. And it's about Jesus. That's what it's about. Oh, but all those weird things in there. Yes, because the world's gone to pot. And he's got to bring them to the point, the Jewish people, this is the seventh week of Daniel, the tribulation, the Jewish people to the point where they will receive Christ as their Messiah. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. The word of truth. As we, I know i got a minute, a minute or two. The word of truth is, truth then is a cor- correspondence between a reality and a declaration which professes to be set forth or describe the reality. Let's say it another way. Words spoken or written are true when they correspond with objective reality. That's why it's so important. You need to understand we're in a post-truth era. America is post-truth. We don't care so much about what the truth is. We know our feelings, and our feelings are the most important part of everything that we're about you understand where we're coming from? Don't assume. We'll talk about this tonight, maybe next week now. But we'll assume things. Everybody doesn't believe truth, as, we believe, as it really is. Noah Webster defined truth as conforming to fact or reality. 
exact accordance with that which is or has been or shall be. Charles Spurgeon said once that the spotless purity of truth must always be at war with the blackness of heresy and lies. Blaise Pascal, 1600s, said this, Truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. You love the truth. This is it. If nothing else, last week, this week, and maybe now next week, we have got to believe and hold forth the truth of God's word. The truth is Jesus came. He came to die for you and you and you and you. And and if you've trusted Christ as personal Savior, that's step A. Step B is being baptized, and step C is serving in some capacity. He's called you to serve. I know some of them are not physically able to serve, but you can pray. You can send cards. If you're texting an email, you can send emails. I have my first class. I got my first class under e- of my six classes. I got one class now who's actually ready, I think, to start sending email. Woohoo! It's been a, a wonderful time. It has been a wonderful time. And I enjoy working with, I so enjoy working with these folks. And I see some folks I really want to talk to about the Lord because they have no inkling. One person had no idea who David and Goliath were. Mm, just you and I take it for granted, don't we? So may we share God's truth. May we hold forth the truth. And if you need to make a decision for Christ this morning, don't wait. Come. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your truth. Lord, I get carried away sometimes. I talk too fast most of the time. But, Lord, your Holy Spirit can take these words and apply them to hearts and lives just where they need to be applied. I don't know anybody's heart but my own. And I know my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Without you, I am lost and undone. I know those things. And, Lord, I have placed my faith and trust in you as a six-year-old boy in Sizeville, Kentucky. And, Lord, I've not always by any means lived as I should, but I know that you saved my honorary soul. I ate. I was baptized to take my stand for you. And Lord, I pray there be others, maybe this morning, they are just in such a condition that, first of all, they may not know you as Savior. Or perhaps they need to be baptized. Or perhaps they need to want to join with our church here. They've been saved and baptized by immersion afterwards. Lord, I don't know the need, but Lord, you do. May you work in our hearts and lives. May the basics, this morning especially, of your word, be, may we be found every day, reading and studying this most precious gift to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.